Are you looking to sharpen your command and leadership skills? The 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference is coming back to the Sharonville Convention Center in Cincinnati, Ohio, September 30th through October 4th. Immerse yourself in five days of targeted command education and leadership training at the 2024 Blue Card Hazard Zone Conference. This is your opportunity to recharge your command skills and stay at the forefront of incident command best practices. This year, we've added a certification lab, September 30th through October 2nd. Also added a May Day workshop, October 1st to October 2nd. The general conference is on October 3rd and 4th. The May Day workshop is filling up fast, and our early bird pricing of $415 each for the general conference is a limited time offer. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Register now at HazardZoneBC.com. Welcome back, B-Shifters. So glad to have you here for this episode. Today, we're going to be hanging out with our own Nick Brunacini and Chief Terry Garrison. Terry was very instrumental in the beginning of command training at the Phoenix Fire Department. And from there, he went out to California to the Oceanside Fire Department, came back to Arizona for a little bit, and then to the Houston, Texas Fire Department, where he was a part of some big changes amid some tragedy at that department. He then returned to Arizona to become the Glendale Fire Chief, and uh, I have the distinct pleasure of writing a column with Chief Garrison called Ask the Chief in the B-Shifter Quarterly, and his advice is always good advice. He's a guy I can listen to and pick up a ton of new information every time I listen to them. Today, it's going to be a little lighthearted. We're going to go back to the origins of command training, how both Nick and Terry first met, and uh, some of the ups and downs of command training with the Phoenix Fire Department. These guys have seen a lot, done a lot, and managed to keep a sense of humor all the while they are putting Mrs. Smith first and the delivery of emergency services. Glad you're here today. Please enjoy this conversation with Terry Garrison and Nick Brunacini. I'm going to ask some questions that I'd like to know the answers to, and then you can omit things that if you, you don't want to omit it and stuff. But I'd really like to find out about when you two started working together. Really, the first time I saw Garrison, I was probably... 15 or 16 years old. Uh Oh, okay. And I was at Mr. Lucky's. I knew we were going. And I was, uh, it was a bar on the West side of Phoenix that a fireman who wasn't a fireman yet owned. And he had a bunch of firemen who were bouncers for him. So I went to high school with a guy who was a, uh, really kind of a mid-level criminal. And he worked at Mr. Lucky's in the snack bar. You know, we weren't old enough to be in there, but because we worked behind in the snack bar, we could be. So there was two levels to this place. There was the top floor was country, country yeah. and the bottom floor was rock. Well, we had the snack bar on the countryside. So my hooligan friend would take a hot dog and fully dress it, mustard, ketchup, relish, the whole thing, and they'd be dancing on the dance floor, and you just start throwing them out at the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember one day there was a, 
a, a bust up one night. Everybody's fighting. It's a, everything's out of control. And I see Garrison kind of standing there wearing his cowboy hat. And they, <laughs> th- there were always a lot of females around him back in those days. So that was the first <laughs> exposure I had to the uh, B shift, if you will. So, Nick, I never knew they had a snack bar there. <laughs> I knew yeah. they had a bar, but I didn't know they had a snack. I remember Mr. Lucky's Fish. That's oh, where I it remember came from. Oh, yeah, okay. See, that Friday's probably, what, yeah. at least 75% of the fire stations order yeah. fish from them. Yeah. So, I mean, it was firemen in there all day long getting fish on yeah. the Friday. There's a saying in Texas, big hat, no cattle. Mm-hmm. That was definitely me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a hat and cowboy boots and... and uh, you know, I had a dad that uh, he never wore tennis shoes. He wore cowboy boots his whole life. I asked him one time. He either wore work boots. He's a construction guy who wore cowboy boots. And he didn't like sneakers. He thought they they stank, which they did on teenage boys. So uh, when I got older, it's like, well, I don't want to stink around girls. So I got me some cowboy boots. But I asked my dad once when he was young. I said, Dad, why don't you wear tennis shoes? And he's a big 300-pound guy, six foot six. And he looks over at me and goes, I don't play tennis <laughs> from that point on. But uh, so I so I wore cowboy boots, and that was my that was my look. Right, you had to have a look, and uh, it worked out okay for me a few times. Yeah, I'd say so. Where did you grow up, Terry? West Phoenix. Yeah, right in the Maryville area. Uh, we were my dad. Like I said, my dad was a construction worker. Mom stayed at home. Two brothers, two sisters, and me. So there's five kids. And, uh, you know, construction wasn't always that steady. But, yeah, I was a con- grew up in a little, small, three-bedroom house, five kids and parents. And, uh, yeah, right there in Maryville that everybody talks about. When do you get interested in the fire department? I never really was. Uh, <laughs> honestly. So, I, I hope that's changed. Yeah. Still not. Yeah. yeah. To this day, I'm, honest, I'm still job hunting. To this day, I'm thinking the things will just go out if we leave them alone. Mm-hmm. But you no, learn I, that after a time, right? So mm-hmm. I, I actually was in the army. I joined the army. I dropped out of great. I dropped out of high school. Hello, dropped out of high school uh, junior year because I got my girlfriend pregnant. What are you going to do about it? So I dropped out of high school and joined the army when I was uh, seventeen. I turned seventeen on October twentieth and went in the army on October thirty first in boot camp. So Halloween, I'm I'm headed to uh, on a bus to boot camp. Uh, so then when I got out of the Army after two years, that was back in the two years, that was 1974 to 76, you do two years. And then when I got out, uh, I thought I would go. I was a helicopter crew chief in the Army, so I thought that I could go to the city and get a job working on helicopters. So I went to the personnel department, and I said, yeah, I'm here to apply for the helicopter, for a helicopter maintenance job. And she looked at me like, you're an idiot. <laughs> We don't even have helicopters. So uh, she goes, but there's a line for the fire department over there. This is last week uh, that they were taking those, but you could try that. And I had my DD-214, so I said, oh, I guess I'll try that. So I stood in the line, and that's how that's how I became a firefighter. I got hired. How old were you then? I was 19. And there was uh, about, remember that? There was 5,000 applicants. I mean, people were mm-hmm. applying all, but they had a deal called Project Romp recruitment of minority persons where if you made a certain amount of money, little amount of money and lived in a uh, certain area, you could get, you kind of go to the top of the list depending on how you score. And uh, I was making that amount of money and living in that neighborhood. So I kind of got 
through a little bit of the door and then taking all the civil service exams in the Army kind of put me up. I think I got a 98 on the test. It was just a written test. And then um, it was uh, five points for a veteran. So that got me to an interview. One interview, they felt sad for me. You're 19. You got your you got a wife and uh, two kids at the time. One of them passed away. You got two kids. And so, yeah, they hired me out of just, they. I think they felt bad for me. So I became a firefighter and I didn't know anything about, didn't do any research or nothing. Just So here it is, I think, uh, 44 plus years. I'm thinking about staying. I don't know. <laughs> do you, do you, does your fire department hire 19-year-olds? Yeah, we hire not not very often, right? Um, but we do hire nineteen year olds still. Eighteen, yeah, is the minimum age. And you were eighteen when you got hired, right, Nick? Twenty. You were twenty. Mm-hmm. How'd you get hired? I uh, I was with a friend of mine who was uh, going downtown to pick up an application, and I he he didn't say what for. He said, I'm going to get a job application. We were out running around. He was driving, so I followed him into the building, and. He, I'm standing next to him. He asked for a fire department app, and the gal comes back, and she gave me one, too. And, oh, what the hell? So I was, uh, I had two or three jobs at the time, and I thought, well, this one pays better. And it appears that nurses, as Chief Garrison pointed out earlier, are more attracted to this occupation. Well, although I was a bartender, so you could do things with that. But anyway, so that was it. I filled out the application, and... I got hired about a year later. My buddy didn't. He flunked <laughs> the test. Yeah. Yeah. See, he. That's great. So that's kind of where it started for me. It was a big surprise. When my dad found out, he, he, he kind of fell over. Like, really? You're what? Yeah. I mean, it still has that pension thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he never tried recruiting you or never no, said, like, uh, this would be a good job for you? No. Or? He just. He used to tell a story. He says, you know, when your kids are growing up, you want them to be successful. And then, you know, when they get a little older, you want them to graduate from college and become senators. And he says, when my kids hit about 17, 16, 17, 18 years old, he says, I just wanted them not to go to jail and live. <clears throat> right. Because that's kind of, yeah. That you've been an overachiever. Exactly. So it's, uh, and it was good. The fire department probably saved our life. Oh, I mean, yeah. if you think oh, about yeah. it. And you guys got hired in the early 80s then, right? Uh, I was hired in 1977 in okay. the fire department. 1980. Yeah, okay. For me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, different times. What? what? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they keep telling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was different times. So, you know, we just went just a little kind of sideboard deal. You probably don't want to go there. But um, so we just went through this, uh, you know, the – Black Lives Matter and and the cops and the protests and and the election and everything. So I called an old buddy of mine who was because I'm trying to figure out how to manage this through the fire department. People, you know, try to keep people neutral as much as possible at work. And so I asked this old fire captain, Captain Ted Ondercheck, you know, Ted, Ted's 82 years old. Speedo Ted. He could come in here and beat us all to death. Uh, he's an amazing man. He's 82 and he's, he's, he's words a size. 16. Call Katie right now. That's will be our only salvation. A size a 16 shoe. And he's just, a, he's a, he's a 
incredibly, his fingers, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. But anyway, I asked, I called him up. I said, Ted, how did you handle, because he was around the fire department when we had Vietnam and some of those kind of protests and stuff. And I said, how did you handle the diversity in the fire station? Would you, how'd that look like? He goes, Terry. He goes, you, you don't get it. He goes, when when I was in the fire department during those time, he says the only thing we argued about. He goes, it's all white guys, and the only th- only thing we argued about is whether you fish trout or bass. <laughs> he said that was a big that was a big discussion of diversity in the fire fire department back then. I said, okay, well that's not very helpful. Thanks, I don't fish, but uh, yeah. So th- look at what we go through now. But well, you talk about times being different, right? Very different. I mean, so I got hired in 1990 as a part-time yeah. firefighter. And there was no discussion around the kitchen table about politics, right. um, about, you know, the issues that people are talking about right now. And I think the fire service is probably very reflective of society, right? Right. I mean, these are things that everybody's going through right now. But uh, Chief Garrison put out, I thought, an awesome letter to your people. Oh, and 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 it was just telling them to downshift a little bit, right? Yeah, thanks for that. And you know, I had heard there was you know discussions, and we weren't nobody was wearing MAGA hats or anything at work, or you know Joe sunglasses. But um, they were there was people were sharing their opinions, and I guess you'd walk in one fire station, it'd be Fox News, and you walk in another, and it's CNN. It's like oh god, and and it really was COVID, so I couldn't get to all the stations. I would that wouldn't have worked anyway. So I try to get out a memo to just basically tell what I told them was that, hey, you guys would risk if if you had a fire right now and the guy sitting across the table that you disagreed with on whatever topic is and you had 20 percent left in your air bottle. He had a mayday. He or she had a mayday. You would rush back in, risk your life. We would have to put somebody at the door to stop you from saving your your fellow firefighter, I said, so, so you care about each other that much. Why would you get in an argument over something that doesn't matter anyway? It's, a, it's at the national level. Don't let that filter down into the fire stations. So uh, what I learned in Houston, Texas, is what other people feel about you is none of their business. And I said, just carry that on to what your politics. What other people care, what you feel about your politics, nobody cares. So um, we made it through, and you know, it didn't seem like a whole lot occurred there. It seemed like everything, and I don't know if it was a memoir or not. It might just be the way people in Glendale decided to feel about each other. But uh, they're they're good people there. But we, it, it is scary. We did something similar because I ripped it off from you. Um, but um, I actually, and, and and this was just on vaccines. I was encouraging people to get vaccines. And I had somebody who was on the other side of the vaccine issue. And she took offense to that. Right. She thought I was being too emotional. And why would I encourage people to get these vicious vaccines that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And You know, the, you can... An employer can cause an employee to have a vaccine. That's so. Like a private company can say, "No, you're not coming back to work here unless you have your vaccine." So it, it, it's kind of odd that people are they're turning it around almost. Like, how dare you? Yeah. But Nick and I talk about this once in a while. The amount of firefighters that hate the government and they and they don't realize they work for the government. That's kind of odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're, and, and by far, I think we're probably the best as far as delivering service goes in the government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. probably so much so they forget that 
That's actually what we do. Oh, no, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to, right? Right. That's just part of the deal. You know, but we were socially active in 1985. uh, I worked downtown at Station One. And Ladder One was in a uh, American La France century apparatus. So it had the floating rear end, just a junk aerial truck. So the captain there uh, was always uh, micromanaging his crew, and they never could do anything right. He had to show them. So Woolsey's doing his I know deal. who he is before he said it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he's going to drive the truck to the academy. They got training that day to show them the proper use of uh, and how you drive a ladder like that. Well, he's pulling out of the bay, and he cuts it too sharp, and the floating axle floats, and the outrigger catches the side of the door, <clears throat> the frame. And we were upstairs, and it sounded like a bomb went off. I mean, literally, it was – we went to slide the poles, but you thought, well, I don't know if I want to go down there. Right. <clears throat> well, we look out the window, and there's ladder one, and half the front of the station's on top of it. So they ended up boarding it up, and they were so pissed off about it, buildings and grounds. They said, we're not going to fix the door. You just have to run out the back. So for at least six months, the front of the station was boarded up. Well, we'd, somebody spray-painted a bullseye on the front and wrote Woolsey's name in an arrow down. So somebody complained, said, you can't put graffiti on it. So we painted it over. And then uh, I think it was Libya had shot at one of our jets or something. So we, we, we tagged it, Gaddafi must die today. <laughs> so we started putting political uh, advertisements on the front of it. And yeah. uh, it got fixed within about two weeks. <laughs> Yeah, if you're not going to fix it, well, they said we'll if you're going to, yeah, we'd rather have a door than a billboard in front of this particular fire station. So, <laughs> They're very active. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. it was good. Well, it's better than putting up a sheet and showing movies, right? Yeah, well, that's what, yeah, but we're always going to do. That. You know, Nick. So we worked together as captains too, though, mm-hmm. but not, but not a lot. Um, but when we worked together as, I was actually John's captain. Uh, for about maybe a year and a half and only saw him for one shift on the, at the station because of PFN, right? And yeah. Then, and mm-hmm. then you guy, then you went and then I promoted and then I followed you. But I was originally sent there, uh, to, I got that station. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't sent there. I got lucky enough to go to station 11. We had the, the best firehouse in the city. It was, it was right next to the county hospital where, and they would do all the trauma. They would open people's chests, and it was a teaching emergency room, and you get all the yeah, – it's a county hospital, right? And then behind us was the uh, – what would you call the – where the poor said – The hospital right? for the mentally insane. Yeah, that's a nice In way prison. Yeah. yeah. And that – they were the prison. Like, they, if you killed, like, more than seven people, you went there type thing because you were criminally insane. So we had that. And then we had hookers that would troll in front of the station – and they weren't expensive, but I didn't go there. <laughs> we used to give them gloves. No, yeah, Don't you get more than one use out of this one? <laughs> they were, we were we were nice. You paramedics so nice. And uh, but it was a it was a, a great area. It was a great area if you're a paramedic because all your patients would go to the county hospital. And seriously, you could walk to the station. It was like across the parking lot, so you get back in service really fast instead of those long drives from hospitals. But it was a great place. And then we had a lot of fires down there because it was, it's it's a. Uh, uh, lower economic area. Did I say that correctly? And there was a lot of buildings that were burning. 
residentials and little commercial buildings, mom and pop kind of places now that they would make into cool restaurants and serve tacos with funny names and <laughs> things like that. But well, there was an engine, a ladder, and an ambulance. And yeah, <clears throat> there are ten years, and every year it ran at least uh, ten thousand runs. I don't know station. Yeah. Oh, it was very busy. And one time, so this is how much Nick actually liked me. So we got we got an we had an ambulance. We called them rescues because that was nicer than ambulance. And and people with low seniority would be assigned to these, but they wanted to be uh, at a permanent station. So you get assigned. So we had a couple guys assigned to our rescue on B shift when I first got there, and they bitched so much about going on the rescue calls or the ambulance calls that I said, hey, let's let's each take like if we each take a shift. Um, Maybe once, I don't even know what it was, once a quarter, once a, whatever, just to give them a break off that so they could get on a real fire engine or a ladder company. And people had, were thought I was insane. Um, and, and I said, I'll do it too, until Nick said, no, I'll do that. And Nick actually was willing to do that. And that was pretty crazy. Do you remember that? Yeah, but I mean, how, how hard it could it be? It didn't their attitude. In no, so they, they, they were always didn't last about something. On. They were still, yeah. they were nice guys, but they they just. Well, and we we got into the ambo business kind of sideways. We, n- nobody ever meant to. And yeah. the problem was, back in the day, there were about a dozen ambo companies in the city. And they all do, they make their money doing inter-facility transports. It, emergency transport was less than 5% of their business. Well, they could never come up with any kind of a rotation that was equitable for all the companies. So they said, what we're going to do is just a round robin. So you start with Ambo Company A, then you go to Ambo Company B, then C, then boom, boom, boom. Well, they're not all over the city like the fire department. So Ambo A is on the east side. Well, I'm on the west side, and you're working a code. Well, Ambo A is coming. So you would do CPR for 30 minutes. You're like, well, this is ridiculous. So it became a bigger and a bigger problem. Well, <clears throat> the fire department, <clears throat> the fire chief and the union president met with the city and all the AMBO, the right. people who run the AMBO companies. We need to do this. So they're going back and forth. And the city's, you know, well, you know, we need to consider, you know, business and the effect of government and all the rest of it. And the, well, I remember my old man said, just a minute. He says, we're the wrong ones making the decision on this. He says, we need to like interview the person who needs the AMBO next because they have to wait 30 minutes right. because you assholes can't make up your mind who's going to make the extra 5%. He says, it's ridiculous. <clears throat> so politically, the union president had the power to take the AMBO service over, and he did. <clears throat> yeah. So that we ended up with the AMBOs. Well, the deal was they weren't going to charge the public for a ride. They said, no, we won't charge. You know, we'll charge your insurance company, and if you can't pay, we'll just throw it right in the garbage. <clears throat> and then they – so we started the Ambos. Well, we bought like 20 ambulances, mm-hmm. and now it's like, well, who's going to be on them? Well, it's all seniority-based. <laughs> so bad. Anybody, not me. Yeah. Well, and our experience with them is – you would go on an EMS call, and you would look at it. It'd be difficulty breathing. Roll the AMBO. I mean, we call for an AMBO that fast because right. they took so long to get. Right. So, but that system's a lot different than a lot of areas. And I know when you tried to institute that in Houston, Terry, it was they 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 weren't used to what the Phoenix system was, where you actually 
request the AMBO once you do the assessment, right? Yeah. Uh, that, so, it's kind of a different system. Well, yeah, Houston, they had a lot of ambulances, right? And if you became a firefighter in Houston, you spent your first five or six, seven years on an ambulance before you made it onto a fire engine. And uh, they were firefighters, and um, but they but <laughs> they were kind of like, oh, man. You know, it's, it's kind of like when you – they were like the invisible firefighters. Like, hey, they're going to take care of it. So they didn't um, – the, the fire, most fire companies – I don't know if I say most, but it's pretty common that the firefighters wouldn't do any – they'd get an EMS call and they would just stand over the patient and wait for, um, for the ambulance to get on the scene and then evaluate and do everything. And uh, ladders didn't go on EMS calls. So, you know, when I changed that, you can imagine how popular I was around ladder guys. Although it was kind of interesting. A lot of them said, yeah, we needed to do this, Chief. That's what they said to my face. They were nice people. <laughs> but um, I remember one call. So we, we, we changed this model. And we had a girl. This is why I remember it mostly is we had a girl that was uh, one of the, the further away fire stations from, you know, 600 square miles, Houston. And a girl got backed over by her parents in a driveway. And I think it might have even been the mom that backed her over. <clears throat> and um, the firefighters that arrived on the scene, apparently, from what I heard, told her, hey, you know what? Uh, your your daughter would be at the hospital right now if that fire chief went and instituted this this fire engine response model. And that wasn't true because what had happened is they got there sooner. We, we dispatched the ambulance at the same time. We just dispatched the engine with it and they spent their time. And to be fair, there was probably somebody on the the crew that was treating a child, but uh, one of them was bad mouthing me the whole time. It's like, really, that's not what it's supposed to do. So if they would have, evaluated package got a, got the child ready then the ambulance would have arrived they could have, it would have all been much quicker so i was able to explain that to the mayor and the city council and it's like okay chief cuz it was it, it got pretty hostile about that i was like okay this is the one where you're going to get in a jam it's like no you guys aren't understanding it correctly we didn't just um not dispatch the ambulance they were still the same distance away we added the engine on the front end that could have created the treatment uh, earlier or started the treatment earlier. So that was kind of goofy. Um, but, you know, once they started uh, going on the calls and even the ladders, I think it, they've realized it all made sense there. Oh. And, uh, you know, I think I'm going to say this, you know, I'm kind of an optimist. But the, I think once the firefighters figure out it's the right thing to do, I think they all get on board. And I don't I just don't think they had thought that before. It just change. Yeah, and if you're a ladder, do you want to go on? Does anybody want to go on uh, difficulty breathing calls or ill people? But that's part of the job, right? That is part of the job, and you get, you get guys who get assigned to those. You know, I had guys who were assigned to ladders or had some technical rescue equipment, and um, they think then that's their job. Like they're not going to do anything else. Like well. Right. Well, I'm a, I'm not a nurse, you know, or whatever. And yeah. it's like, well, this isn't 1975 either. Yeah. You know, we're we're in a different time. So, yeah. Best customer service, right? I mean, it's like whatever we can do to provide the best service is is what we should do. And if that's sending an engine or a ladder or 
Well, once they realize that uh, the, the Houston people, once they realize our firefighter, once they realize that that's the way it's going to be, they jumped on board right away. And it changed. I mean, you think about a big ship changing slowly. Nah, they they were right on it, and it and it it happened pretty quick. And um, I'm thinking they're still doing it. I don't think Pena has done anything different. But um, yeah, it didn't take them long to get on board. But it, the, it's the best thing. The fire department delivers. The highest level of service if, yeah. for EMS. I mean, we just do. So given the choice between the fire department running the AMBOs or a private company, I would always take the other. Yeah. The other thing that <clears throat> advantage to it, and we used to tell the people on the AMBOs, is, hey, man, if you work for a private AMBO company, you'd be making a third of the money. You'd be working more. You'd have, you wouldn't have the same benefits that you mm-hmm. do. See, and that was really kind of the most telling thing for me. I thought all these these dozen ambulance companies are fighting over these crumbs. We took this service over. We paid everybody that worked on them a living wage. Uh, we didn't gouge the customer, and we still made a profit at the end of the year off the AMBOs. They brought in more than it went out. And you think this is kind of the way it's supposed to look. Well, no, you know, the private business. Well, yeah, you, they make <laughs> a third of the money. <laughs> so... And the fire department, I think, is a more responsible uh, employer, if you will. I mean, there, there's things that we do that are a little higher level than. And and owning the patient care from the dispatch all the way to the de- delivery at the hospital is pretty important. Yeah. We do that better than anybody. Exactly. Now we have a we have a private ambulance company in Glendale Fire Department right now. We haven't uh, moved forward with our CON, our city managers. Uh, not quite supportive of it yet. Uh, I'm sure he'll get on board someday. But um, they, we got a, we're pretty fortunate. We have a pretty good ambulance company. This run by a former firefighter, mm-hmm. so he kind of gets it. And uh, so we have a we have a good model. But back then, it was. You remember Ted when he was on ambulance? Oh, Ted when? Yeah, mm-hmm. he was. He was the most. <laughs> Interesting guy in the plane. Finally, he became a firefighter, a great firefighter, but he was an ambulance. It was like one of those movies. Remember the early movies with the ambulances arriving? And it's like, it it was like, oh, my gosh. That was the first, Ted was the first person to tell me, one is too many and a thousand is not enough. <laughs> yeah. He was a lunatic. And, and he was always dealing with uh, uh, issues of some kind or another. But but when we hired him, we got ourselves a firefighter. He loved. I mean, think about it. He was an ambulance jockey back when they were probably called that. And man, he would get right in there on an ambulance. He was a trauma trauma guy. He was. Um, was he a paramedic in the military at some point? He's had a. He had a unique, all kinds of unique. Experience. He very we probably he, shouldn't be talking to a guy. You could probably take his name out of here when you do it because I think he's still around. But he 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 was a, one of the guys. We didn't get a lot of people. Trent, the reason I brought this up, so we didn't get a lot of people that transitioned well from ambulance to firefighter. And even you know, is it's interesting when people want to become paramedics. Uh, we assume they all want to be firefighters. So there is a point in Houston where um, we needed we needed paramedics. In fact, what we were doing in Houston, we were forcing an entire class. If you were in this group of thirty, and we hired like three hundred while I was there, if you're if you're this group of thirty in this class, you are all going to medic schools. You have no choice. Well, how do you think they did? What was there? But um, 
So it's like, let's hire some paramedics. The mayor at the time, let's hire paramedics. I said, oh, I'd like to put that out. So we put out a let's hire paramedics only. We had 29 candidates mm. in the entire state of Texas. Actually, it was a national recruitment. And, um, yeah, how about that? So we don't get a lot of people that want to go. Maybe now they're more, there may be a little bit more of it, but back then they didn't transition into the fire department. Do you know anybody else who did that? Who other than Ted? That's kind of why we remember him because he was there, and then that day he was kind of on our team. But I don't remember anybody else that was a ambulance jockey that transferred over. Let's take a quick break. Enhance fire ground leadership with our critical thinking and strategic decision making class, designed to strengthen incident command through the functions of command and foster a safer, more effective decision-making process for fire service professionals. The only critical thinking and strategic decision-making class at the Allen V. Brunacini Command Training Center in Phoenix, Arizona is May 22nd and 23rd. Sign up at bshifter.com. No, we had guys that when... When we took the ambos over, there were some older firefighters that took ambo spots. Yeah, and they did permanent spots for for a long time. Yeah, like the, the whole last five years of their career, they worked on an ambo. Oh yeah, Paul did, didn't he? It, yeah, Rudy. There was a couple of yeah. them. The, the, and you. But you thought, well, they were kind of, they had their, you yeah. know, they, I think they got, they kind of realized that the first, you know, three to five minutes on a working fire is kind of fun. And then after that, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. but there were guys who were really good at being a medic and good oh, at working yeah. in the ambulance yeah. and oh, great exactly. bedside manner and great skills. And that's who you want. Right. Well, yeah. and we, we didn't dump on the ambo so much because no. we did all the treatment. So we would always get there and treat the patient. So it wasn't like the Houston deal where, like, the ladder would show up and no, wait for no. the AMBO to come. No. It, it, our system evolved different. So, it, But our deal was to quick call for an AMBO because it took so long to get. So we were, were constantly. Busy, yeah. Oh, and I mean, like, the first six months, they started to get some PTSD. So we, you know, hey, we need to quit, blah, blah, blah. And so you kind of soften it because they work for the same organization. Hell, they're in the fire station with you hyperventilating three or four times a day. I don't want to be here. Well, you could work for the private one down the street. I remember going into admin at the time. And as a young guy, I didn't go into admin a lot. And uh, there was maybe when they when we started, there's maybe three or four young ladies that were collecting for the AMBO. And mm-hmm. a year later, you go in there and there's an entire floor of people collecting ambulance fees, right? right? Yeah. They, they, when they figured that out, they said, if you will build a patient uh, within 72 hours or something, you will increase your collection rate by like 50%. So Phoenix, when we turned it over to a, a Ambo company to collect right. for us, is we had over an 80% collection rate, which was unheard of at the time. And when you say you're the defi- you're the fire department collecting, they, they seem more likely to pay rather yeah. than you're the ambulance for whatever reason. When I was running ambulance collections, I'd have some people overpay because they wanted the fire department to have the extra money. Oh. So once in a while, I'd get like, "Well, 
this ambulance ride wasn't eight hundred dollars. It's like no, no, it's two hundred dollars for yeah. buy the guy steaks or something. It's <laughs> like that's on me. Private companies are not getting that. And when you guys are talking about private companies, we had one that was like Mother Jugs and Speed. Yeah, that's, you know, that's it was, what I was thinking. Yeah, everyone's drunk driving the ambulance. Uh-huh. And one, we had a patient get CO poisoning from being in the back of the ambulance. <laughs> had some kind of linoleum tile out of a kitchen that they had holes in it because it's the Midwest and things rust and everything. And it was, it was pathetic. You know, it's like, well, well, now we have to retreat the patient and put them in another ambulance because you're making them (laughs) sicker. New problem. Yeah. Uh, Do don't do no further harm. Right. They probably become immune to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but there were some places that we would go to do uh, blue card stuff and you're talking to their training staff and officers that, deliver that kind of content. And that was one of the things that they would bring up. They said, the problem we have is our new officers don't have any firefighting experience. And you ask them, well, why don't they? And they said, well, because they've worked the last 10 years on an AMBO. And their only way off is they promote off of it onto an engine company as an officer. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, that's just the state of affairs and... Uh, hell, most of the fire service probably that runs Ambos today. Yeah, so it just uh, kind of along those lines. So uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, uh, Daniel Groover, I didn't get to know him. But I just know he's wonderful based on talking to his wife uh, in Houston. Uh, had 21 years on, and it was all on an ambulance. He was one of those guys who was so good at paramedic treatment, and just that's what he loved to do. And so uh, he stayed most of his career on an ambulance and then went to a fire. He was getting ready to retire, went to an area called Kingwood, which is kind of out in the outskirts, uh, to retire, got him a great crew and they were going to take care of him. Well, we dropped the ball because, um, he got, he, he ended up, uh, he ended up being out there as a firefighter with no additional training. So we, we, and he, he had, a. um, he died his line of duty death at a house fire. And I th- we didn't train him the way we should have. So we implemented a system right after that. I left not long after that. That was my last line of duty death there. But um, And Ellie Gruber knew it, his wife, and I talked to her many times, still talk to her every year. And she's like, hey, you know, and that's one thing you always hear from, from the uh, – the the family members that are left it's like hey my husband our daughter in one case love what they do um and they died in a fire doing their job and they wouldn't want to do any other job but you need to learn from this and that's and ellie's the one that i remember the most is she would say chief you make me a promise i remember sitting on her couch you make me a promise you learn from this so um that's that's not good what nick was talking about and it happens out there you can you can do that but you need to develop some internal training process for them and so we ended up in Houston. If you were off for a certain period of time, a few months, you went back to the academy and got checked out before you went back on. We got really serious about it, and we're doing it here in Glendale too. But, uh, yeah, so he went 21 years, ends up at a retirement company with a bunch of guys he really liked who just happened to be off that day. Uh, new firefighters coming in, don't don't really understand his capabilities. They go to a house fire, he gets lost, runs out of air, and mm. – and uh, actually, he didn't he didn't he had some air left in his bottles? But he did that that deal where the you don't turn the bottle all the way on about five hundred. 
PSI, it kind of equalizes. But that was a lesson for me. You got you to gotta credential people is the term we used it, if they've been off the truck for a long period of time. Um, well, and, and, and backing up about, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up. Line of duty deaths, you've dealt with them. Yeah. What, what advice would you give us to prevent them and how, and how, and and then how to deal with them if, if, because it's, it's something that keeps us up at night. So, so what we did after the, uh, Southwest freeway fire is, uh, and, and organize, it's sad because organizationally everybody gets on board, uh, after a line of duty death and you, you look for common solutions and it's too bad we don't do that before. You're like, Hey, let's try to figure out better how to prevent them. And I don't think any department, we all say we do, but I don't think we do a good enough job. And, you know, even when we had first had Brett Tarver, we tried to fix it with tools. Remember that? One of the first recovery things is we need more air in our bottles and better rescue tools. Well, that's bullshit. Uh, so what we found out and, um, in Houston is right away. I said, okay, I've seen this before. And it worked through a process. So it wasn't my idea. It was a bunch of people working. We had a committed organization. Uh, Houston Fire Department was tired of, of, of losing people. So what we did is we tried, what I saw was there was three fixes. Really, we, we implemented three things. First of all, the strategic level, which is blue card. And I'm not saying it because I'm on this. That was what we did. They were committed to blue card. And to this day, uh, they're still doing blue card and they're not going to, I don't see them moving away from that. And I think we were lucky enough to get a grant for almost a half a million dollars to move forward. The blue card, the second piece was Fireground Survival, which is a great program through the IAFF that we got everybody through that piece. And then the third piece at the time was um, the, the Fire Dynamics. It was the F-Star at the time. Dan Mikowski and his group came out, Kerber, and talked to our chief officers. We have you know a couple hundred chief officers. So when you think about it, you got 92 fire, 92, Two fire stations at the time. I think we got, they got a few more now. And then you have four shifts. So that's a lot of battalions or a lot of, um, district chiefs. So, um, we had them all show up one day, listen to Mikowski, Matikowski, I'm sorry. And he did his uh, presentation for, I think it was two, two days or two and a half days. And we were committed to that. So we did the, the blue car. Uh, so we got better at strategic level and, and decision-making. We did the fire ground survival, which is better as, you know, 75% of that we said is to stay out of trouble. And then 25% is to get out of trouble. But we really, I wanted to focus on staying out of trouble, the front end of that. And then we did the uh, the, the fire science and got a better understanding of how buildings burn and what what happens in the fire ground, what happens with ventilation, wind-driven fires. We had that. You know, that was a, um, a big, uh, that probably a causal factor in the, in the, uh, the Southwest Freeway fire where we lost four people, five, including Bill Dowling, a few years later. So, yeah, we were committed. So I would say that, you know, if you just look at your organization to prevent it, you know, we're focus on at least those three areas, and then you may want to add more. But that that's the three areas we want to focus on. Too many fire departments sit around. When I got to Houston, um, I went to the – and they're all good guys. I mean, really, they, I, I didn't have anybody disrespect me when I was in Houston. But I, I went to the first couple um, 
weeks of meetings with the command team. And I told him, I said, you guys, this is like being at a movie theater. And our fa- our chairs are not facing the screen. We're facing sideways at the wall. And the wall is the city and all the bullshit that comes from that and personnel directives and all this. We're going to try to spin our chairs around and focus on the screen, which is our people doing the job. And we were, and we got some really good command uh, officers in there, and we were able to do that. And they may have been doing that more in the field, but it wasn't. Can you imagine uh, getting that many people all on the same page? But they were committed. I'll tell you what. They they were. One thing about the, the Houston Fire Department, they they come, they rallied together and support change. They did that when they lost uh, a Yankee early on, uh, even before I got there, when they got their four-person staffing, they came together as an organization. So I would say come together before you have the event. And what did Bruno used to say about the way you treat each other after event? If you want to know what's going to happen two weeks after shitty, something shitty happens to your fire department, you got to go back and see what you were doing two weeks before. So, so that's – you really need to uh, – be a little bit proactive and i don't think i don't think we do that well in the fire service well and and thankfully i've never been through it myself but they say that if you have one of these events and there's fissures in your fire department it's just going to start to crack i mean it's going to come apart if, if you're not on the same page before yeah, they came on the same page in Houston. It was so devastating because I've seen that and I've heard that, you know, one shift will blame another shift. And if I was there, that would never would have happened. And But, um, you know, the crew that it happened to, that was the crew. The, you, if you had a fire, that's the, that's the companies you would want. And that's the incident commander you would want on this fire. He was, he was the guy. Good old country guy that just knew how to run a fire, never got too excited. So you couldn't have had better players. So when this happened, it wasn't, oh, yeah, look what those knuckleheads did. It was, oh, my God, it happened to any of us now. So we came together. But I've seen organizations and heard of organizations coming completely apart after a tragedy. And sometimes it's because the fire chief doesn't acknowledge it. The, oh, yeah, well, you know, everybody did, you know, we're okay. Let's get some new piece of equipment. I would do the same thing today if if we had that fire. That's the one that drives me crazy is when they make oh, yeah. that statement. It's like, well, we, and I, I know what they're, they're trying not to disrespect the people who gave their lives of the fire. Right. But at the same time, if you were that person's family, you'd want to hear, yeah, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to put people through this again. Well, I think, I think Bruno said that when we lost, uh, uh, Brett Tarver, somebody asked him, what would you do different? He said, I'd do everything different to keep from losing a firefighter. They go, what? He goes, everything. I'll do everything different. What do I need to do different? We're going to do something different. But to people say, oh, yeah, you know, we'd do it that way again. You know, every every line of duty death, you can look back and say, okay, that we need to change that, that, that. So You guys doing okay? Mm-hmm. My feet are killing me. Oh, <laughs> we'll get Kyle in here to massage him for oh, you. Oh, that guy's so nice. <laughs> He's I, I wanted you guys to to kind of give us the annotated history of when you were shift commanders, because to mm-hmm. me, the halcyon days of the Phoenix Fire Department from an outsider was when we used to come here to do command training with the Phoenix Fire Department when you did the symposiums and. We got to see. So how did all that come together with you guys working as shift commanders and then teaching command training for the Phoenix Fire Department? That was one of the things that came out of the Southwest Supermarket Fire. So like Terry said earlier, 
when that first happened, we thought, okay, this is a rapid intervention thing. We need to fix that. That didn't, that was a failure here. This didn't work. This didn't work. So, and really, there was a lot more smaller things that I I think led to what happened. <clears throat> so, when both of us got hired, there was a shift commander system in Phoenix. So you had one deputy chief for each shift that worked a 24-hour shift. So they were the ranking person. Well, what happened is in the 80s, as the city grew and got bigger and bigger, you see, we used to send everybody to the training academy, all the companies. So 40 stations used the training academy. Well, the city's over 500 square miles. We start our shift at 8. So you're not going to be on the truck coming to the academy until 8 o'clock. Well, if you're in North Phoenix, it's going to take you an hour and a half to get there. So it was it was becoming hugely disruptive to train people. And at the same time, we were coming out of uh, our union had made some changes. The city had just gone to a district system. So there's a lot of politics going on, too. So the decision was made that we were going to go to a district system and we went with staff deputies. So what that essentially did is when I was a battalion chief, I had a deputy chief who worked a 40 hour week, essentially. And then they would take turns pulling the duty where they would be the senior advisor for the command van. So they all had Murphy beds in their office and nobody could see their calendars but them. So, you know, you've got the gig when your secretary can't see your calendar. So anyway, what would happen is if they had a tactical question, they would just come in and ask whoever the BC was. Well, we're running fires one night. Terry show up with the command van. We're doing our thing. My boss comes in and sits down. For, the only thing he ever cared about, do you have a par? That was their deal. Do you have a par? Every one of these staff deputies. Yeah, you learn. Yeah, we have a par before they even ask it. Well, what that did is I really didn't have a boss then as a BC. I mean, if I needed something, I knew who my boss was, and we got along, and that all worked. But he really wasn't there to be my boss, especially for being a tactical person. So what that did is that... There were eight battalions at the time, three shifts. So there were essentially 24 different models that you were going to use to do structural firefighting operations, depending on your battalion and shift. So coming out of the Southwest supermarket, no, we have got to (laughs) see it. When we put the districts, we decentralized all task level training. So the, the, the creating the training and delivering it was battalion specific. So Battalion 4 could be doing something that was completely wrong, and nobody would have known but Battalion 4. So so you you started making all these different fire departments with this organization of this big city that we had become. So one of the things the group sat down, it was all the ops chiefs are in the room. I'm like, no, we've got to go back to a system where we can train ourselves and create all this content that keeps us on the same page. There was a lot of stupid task-level shit that happened at Southwest supermarkets that added to this. So anyway, that was it. So they they went to shift commanders. So that was my interview was September 11th, 2001. And so I just got out of the shower. I'm getting dressed, put my uniform on. My wife's watching the TV. She says, "Uh, you need to see this. (laughs) Oh, my. 
Is that our shift commander interview? Yeah, it was my. So yeah, I called. I called fire admin, and I talked to my. I said, "Hey, I've got an interview today. I I suppose that we're canceling this. Maybe she says, I would say so. The mayor's hiding under your father's desk right now. <laughs> but I was yeah, the, the same way. I was sitting at, on the couch, putting on my really fancy shoes for our mm-hmm. interview. Your right? shiny shoes. I was interviewing with you today. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, and uh, I saw that, and I told my wife, I said, uh, c- come look at this. Same type of thing. Okay, well, I, I guess I'm staying home today. No yeah. interview. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, they rescheduled them all. So Nick will tell you the, the truth about – so I was a battalion chief a little bit uh, before Nick because, uh, you know, that's how many years I probably have on more than – I didn't make really make captain until I had tw- 12 years on. I liked being a firefighter and a paramedic and – uh, it was kind of fun. So about 12 years, I promoted the captain. Uh, I was never an engineer, but I worked one summer in a car wash. So I feel like I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got those skills. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke yeah. to uh, an engineer of mine yeah. who yeah. tried to tease me about that once. But um, <laughs> so uh, it was interesting because when we took the shift commander, they only had an interview for shift commander. There was it wasn't a deputy chief interview. So Nick, we were we were the only John Hinton and you and I were the only. Was there there was no was it Hobel? No, Hobel was already a deputy chief. Yeah, he, him and maybe Gomez. So we were the only real yeah. shift commander, and so we had to go through a process because it's like you can't make the fire chief's son a uh, deputy chief without a process. And uh, and there was times in our in our department where you just interview out of interest and you get promoted to deputy chief. And I don't know if that's happening now or not. I don't know if there's a process. There may not be a process now. But we went through an actual process. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> and uh, we got it. So we would wear most people wore deputy on their uh, shirt, which was a rank. But Nick wore shift commander. He goes, no, this is what I tested for. No, before. and when they try to move me, I did not test to be a deputy chief. So you got to move me back <laughs> to a battalion. Best gig I ever had was battalion chief, man. That was you had no responsibility and could do whatever you wanted. So I mean, it was just so, tremendous. So we got tasked, um, and I don't. I think the order Nick was probably better with history because I've you know a little older and I've worked a few more places, so it all kind of jumbles <laughs> together. But um, so we got we were the shift commander. So Nick and I were teaching. Let me let me tell you a little bit about. So Nick and I, the way it worked in the in the the Phoenix Fire Department is Phoenix Community College. Uh, was the was a community college where everybody who wanted to promote to captain or any rank really would go to this college and take whatever class. So the big class was a tactics class. And I think Bruno was probably the first instructor of the Phoenix College tactics class. And he did it, and then he handed it down to his next guy who was Compton, who was the operations chief, who was, you know, that he was next. And then it went down to, I think it went to Doug Tucker, who is next, and then it went to Dennis Dote, and then it went to me, something like that. There might have been some people in between there. And then and then the, and the way it would work is you would select your next person to do the next part. So I selected Nick to, to come in and take it when I moved up or when I moved out or when I got tired of it or whatever. So we started teaching together and we kind of got a kick out the other day. There was a NIOSH report that came, we didn't get a kick out of the NIOSH report, but in the NIOSH report, it had the decision-making model 
Well, Nick and I created that when we were teaching because all the other instructors through that, that lineage that I just said, they would teach the eight functions of command. So each week in a college class, they'd take a function. And then at the end, they would, so they get through eight weeks and then it'd be simulations. Well, when we were teaching, it's like this, I don't know if it was the first semester we taught or the second, but it, it's like, this is hard to teach this way. You can't teach this function. And you guys probably find that as you read the books and go through your classes. It's like, how do you want to teach this? So we came up with, what if we just taught this, we taught this model and we came up with the model. Am I saying this right? And we started teaching the model for the students, and people were getting it. And they were like, oh, that makes so much more well, sense. Well, it just it connected everything better yeah. than it had been. So yeah. what you, the first deal is, is, like Terry said, we picked it up, and that's when it was like uh, rescue, fire control, property conservation. And in those days, you would ventilate and search ahead of the fire attack. It's just yeah. the stuff we did. So... We were teaching, and it was all the the students were all taking the captain's test. That's why they were in the room. And one of them asked, they said, okay, you know, we had a fire the other night, and it was in a vacant commercial building that was boarded up and deteriorated. It's had three or four fires in it. And he says, we go in there, and we're doing, like, right, right-hand wall searches. It says, now, why do we treat that the same way as we do, like, an occupied nursing home? And remember, we're looking at each other thinking, that is the stupidest goddamn thing I have ever heard. And you're like, you use the same answers that they used on you. You know, these right. old guys. Well, it's the best chance for the for the customer. You know, any victims, this is if we don't find them, they're dead. And you're we're like, well, parents. Right? Yeah, and you think, well, no, it doesn't make any sense. So that's where you started pulling in the critical factors and saying you're not going to do a big search and rescue operation in a chlorine warehouse that's on fire. It's just not going to happen. Now, you would hear people, well, oh, we're just writing off the victims then. And you think, you know, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be allowed to talk right now. You have no idea what you're saying. You've got 10 minutes of air in your bottle, and you want to search 200,000 square feet of toxic environment. I mean, so you could use that decision-making model almost like a lawyer, I guess, yeah. to say, no, this is why we're doing what we're doing. So your incident action plan had to make sense based on the conditions you were dealing with. I think that's what changed it, is they started to say, oh, okay. So, so what was it, 10 years later, we moved life safety below fire control. Fire control is the first tactical priority. Because if you do fire control, you have done life safety and property conservation. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. I'll go to the next round, Monty. <laughs> so, but it was interesting. So we were teaching this class as battalion chiefs and kind of just figuring out the class that everybody taught. And everybody who was taking the captain's test would come to our class, just like we went to the class before. And But things were changing the way we were teaching. We didn't realize that we were just trying to figure out a better way to teach. It's like, this makes no sense. And, and answering, you know, really trying to answer people questions, <laughs> what we should have done, right? And said, no, you always take the first line through the front door, the back you come from, the second line comes from the other direction. It's a larger line. That yeah. was what they taught before. First so ladder goes to the roof, well, we second ladder does yet. forcible entry. And it, it, it didn't work that way. It was too uh cookie cutter so anyway we started teaching together and that's where we would i guess nick probably spent some time talking to his dad about how we were teaching and not then, really no no well we started talking. he would have stopped us we so we started uh kind of 
I, I think the notoriety of the fact that we, him and I were teaching it, because we weren't anything special as battalion chiefs, but when we started teaching, it's like, oh, these, this is kind of the way to do it. Well, and see, we had worked at PFN, so right. we had a graphics background. I mean, in 1985, I took a Photoshop class at a Holiday Inn in Tempe from one of the guys that wrote the program. Nobody knew what it was. And we thought, well, how do we do this? And you got to go to this class. You know, the video guy sent you. So you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, Jesus. So, anyway, we're, te- we're changing the, the content of the program because we have skill sets to make graphics and shit like that. So it, it just it, it made it better. We used to do the BCDC thing, right. quarterly training. I think it was a joke. But anyway, the, we made a test up, I remember, off the tactics thing. And it was, it was revolutionary. It was almost like a blue card deal for the time. Right. So that really kind of, uh, we disrupted it and confused people enough that they left us in positions. And they said, We're, you're either going to go to jail or you get promoted another time or two. We yeah. don't know which yet. Well, the guy you were talking about that wanted us thrown out of PFN, I remember he, uh, he came and got me. He says, I need you to answer some questions. So I'm sitting there, and he's got his computer up. And he's, you know, and it's got the old Windows thing with the little tubes and the little spirographs, all that shit goes all over the screen. And so he turns on PFN. It's on his computer. And so it's him talking. See, and what happened is he took over the, the whole division. So our TV show went from being a TV show to being 30 minutes of him just talking, and then our TV show. So during his piece, because it was so long, we would have fun. So we would put on like a, 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 wrestle, a Mexican wrestling match and do close-ups of screaming like a madman. And then as he's droning on, we would put a little bubble in the bottom of just this. He, and he didn't know who it was. It was all, they just, boom, it'd be like two seconds. How did you get my computer and do that? I said, we didn't. (laughs) Well, they didn't understand how you put program. He thought I actually broke into his computer and was spying on him. So, like, the... the, Now you know why I was sent there. The technicians are coming in and (laughs) saying, how did you do this? And you're like... Really? Do you know what a, like a JPEG is or a, an MP3 file? Uh huh. These shake their head. We were we had pagers on our hips. Yeah, we, we used to have pagers. Time. Oh, it really was us <laughs> and drug dealers. We wore pagers. <laughs> I remember I was a shift commander, and that pager they they would page you for like a first alarm in the city of Mesa, and they just kept sending it and sending it. I was talking to somebody, some chief. I think it was Burdick. Mm. And I took that pager and I threw it against the wall. It just exploded. I did like cut his <laughs> cheek. <laughs> you can do this. This is I don't like coming to feeding stations. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Marco. So anyway, uh, so that, loading up on so me, we baby. Started, so I'm just trying to figure out how we got like to the CTC. Right. So it started with us teaching together. And then uh, I think kind of the notoriety for we were starting to kind of manage some of the interior training pieces, right? And then I don't know how the hell we became, how we got the whole CTC. It was just one day we were at the CTC. Well, Tarver died, and that was, you know, I was part of the recovery. Yeah. And we were going to start doing command training. Consistent it was going to be a new training deal. Yeah, department-wide. And it was going to be a program like EMS was. So I remember at the time, there was a different union president, and 
the advice from the vice president was don't run this through anybody. Just do it. If you want to get it done, do it. Because if you ask permission, it's going to take you five years. They'll keep trying to derail it. So it's almost a partisan thing. But remember, it it almost got derailed by the the one guy. They put a deputy chief and a union guy as a a training committee. that We went to one of their meetings. Mm -hmm. They tried to control us, and we showed up at one of their meetings, and they tried to stop everything we were doing. Well, they said, said, we need to see your curriculum. Well, we had just finished the second edition of Fire Command. So we showed up with that whole thing, which was about two and a half feet high, and then all the SOPs, and then we had been building SIMs. And we said, here it is. We'll see you when you go through it all. Well, we never went back. We, just, we didn't go back to their – they kept having meetings. I think they had monthly meetings. Yeah. And we were the trainers, and we didn't go to the training meetings. No, we went to none. But we told our boss. We said, we're not going to these anymore. Do you want us to train people, or do you want us to represent you at these stupid meetings? Yeah. Yeah. No, we're done. In fact, keep sending us to the meetings, and we will go into uh, – it will degrade the fire department further. This isn't a good idea. You promoted the wrong people. <clears throat> well, the command training center really set, I mean, emotion, what we're doing right now, right. With blue card and mm-hmm. everything else. And yeah, uh, at the time, I mean, it, there was nothing like it. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. Well, this is, these are the conversations that we were having for the fire service. Finally. We put together, well, Garrison wrote the, the student workbook for the second edition of Fire Command. So okay, we, so let me correct. So I didn't really write it, but I took the information Bruno had and I rearranged it. <laughs> All right, so Garrison <laughs> produced that. We produced uh, the second edition, and there was, <laughs> we could not use all the content during tactics. Yeah. You didn't have time to. Yeah. And we thought there's got to be a better way. Then we go to CTC and we're doing the same thing, essentially. And said, we're going to go through each. We're going to do this through the functions. That's going to be the first piece. And then we're going to break into sims. So yeah. We kind of went down that road. But we had John Hinton there uh, with us uh, as we started in the CTC. And he had a educational background. He was a high school teacher before he became a firefighter. So everybody, uh, John, uh, John Bernasini was the guy that would spend hours and hours, you know, with the simulation. Nick, people thought, Nick, why is that guy so lazy, man? He's in there sleeping. The station is 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I got to get in there. I'd have to, I would relieve him. And I, they go, Nick's still sleeping. It's 10 o'clock. I said, probably because he was up writing until three in the morning, which is true. He's, do you guys know that about him? No, it's good. It was it was a nice place to work and but do he, what you wanted. He's not lazy. He does it at night. He no, I procrastinate as well as anybody. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. You it, just have to produce it at some point. So then we started. So then the CTC uh, was the the key to the CTC was all three shift commanders trying to get all battalion chiefs on the same page. That that was the key. And, of course, we had the support of the fire chief. And um, at the time, the labor group, they're all probably gone now. And they didn't – we went for how many months before anybody from labor even attended the training? Because they, yeah, they, they were, weren't a part of it because we didn't go to the committee meetings, so they didn't come to the CTC. And, hell, we liked all the people. We, they weren't bad people, but they weren't going to come to our place. We didn't go to their place, so they didn't come to ours. And we were, would not want each other showing up to one another's trials to testify. We knew that yeah. much about each other. So, but yeah. you're very familiar with each other. Yeah. And you, th- the sergeant of arms used to stop by after lunch, it, it, but maybe a little toasty. It's what are you doing? It, get the. Uh, 
Oh. Yeah, and you know what? And it was kind of interesting because the the fire chief had already even before that. I think he was doing the the, the symposiums. Yeah, those yeah. those have been so way were, before that. They were so as we uh, kind of brought the CTC into that. Um, then we got to kind of move out into the symposium world a little bit. So you guys had the, the stuff going at the at the command training center and the symposiums, and then people would show up from everywhere. Right. What was the mood like about that? Did, 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 I mean, you guys probably got it, but did, did the firefighters from Phoenix understand like, man, this is like the whole country's looking at this. I, you know what? I'm going to jump in on the, just, I, I think in retrospect, if you talk to firefighters that were there, then you talk to them now, they miss it because they loved it. It was like Phoenix Fire Department was an example, and we were kind of leading the way because of Bruno. That's why, right? And um, so they miss those times. I think when you're in it, you don't even realize you're really in it unless you're a part of it. I think I think the whole organization was excited that we could put on these these symposiums. Some of us, it was just a lot of work, right? But um, I think now if you talk to the, any just about anybody from that time, there's, man, I remember when Phoenix was a leader. You know, but you don't realize how good you get it. You had it till after we used to do uh, like EMS training. They just took you off shift and sent you for uh, three days, and you got your EMT. If if you're a paramedic, you had to go into a different room, and they did different stuff with you. So we would do company training. Was the other. And we would do that in the battalions at that time. Well, if you miss company training, you didn't make it up. It's just, unless it was minimum company standards, you had to do that every year. But uh, so with command training, because it wasn't a mandatory, you didn't have to carry, there was no cert that was going to be with it. It was just a training program. So, and then you had the, the problem with the training committee and they wanted, you know, we want to approve of everything and we don't believe in this and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, <clears throat> so we're putting this thing on and what it was, was brand new. So I remember the first class that I was involved in is all the firefighters that came in had heard about all this stuff and wanted to see how it worked because we had never done a simulation before where you actually tore the thing apart. Up to that point, everybody looked at the same picture, sat in the same room, and did the same thing. So at the time, we thought, no, we need to, because you don't go through the same way. And bigger, you know, you got multiple uh, access points to it. So anyway, what ended up happening is over time, see, Abbott, he'll be in the next day or two. He was kind of, him and the secretary were the training coordinators and the administrative support piece of that. <clears throat> They came up with a set of numbers after like three years of the program, and they said it was 80% attendance. Well, back in those days, if you got 50%, you wouldn't hold makeups. So we were getting the highest voluntary compliance to come in. And that pissed off the people in the other booth because it was like, okay, now you don't get to be pretty pigs. <laughs> uh-uh. <clears throat> so it, th- no. that was kind of part of it then. And it was, there was a little jihad too, because remember the old deputies were pissed off and you took the parts of the job we love. And, and remember <coughs> our boss, the ops chief, calling one day and he's saying, hey, because we went from a shift commander system away from a district commander, but the district commanders never went away. They were still there. 
And they were still district commanders, but you thought, what are you going to do with them? The shift commanders do everything now. Like I say, we were the pretty pigs at the time. So they decided to put over half of them back out in the field as battalion chiefs. And I remember getting the phone call like on a Thursday from Christ. And he says, hey, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay. He said, you got to train them. They got to be ready to go out and be a battalion chief. <laughs> I said, so we're demoting him? He says, no, they're not getting demoted. They're keeping the same pay. <laughs> hey, man, this is bullshit. We should have been asked if we wanted one of these jobs, Steve. Right. <laughs> no, you guys are stuck where you're at. So he says, you got to get them trained up so they can run a fire. That's great. When do they go out? He says, Monday. I thought, like, in two months? He says, no, like next week, Monday. Said, that ain't going to work. <clears throat> And remember, all these guys came in, and I was the one that got picked. You have to do the class with them. <laughs> so I remember sitting there, and it, it was a whole group of them, man. They just they were all older, and just they, they were pissed. <clears throat> so they offload for ten or fifteen minutes, just yelling and screaming, "We hate you, young guys!" You know. And at the end, they're like, "It's not your fault. We would have done the same thing." That's so sorry. <laughs> so you're like. And one of them finally said it. He says, you know, we're worried about this. He says, I've never been in the field in like the last 15 years. If I show up to a fire, I don't know what to do. And I said, yeah, man, this is, it sucks. I, I don't know what to tell you because <laughs> we got like 72 hours. You're not going to get trained up. And it got quiet. We all just kind of stared at each other. Well, there was some uh, fits in the room. I said, all of you have a fit, right? Uh-huh. Well, you can all write. You know the numbers. You only got to go to 40. That's all we got is 40 things. So can you track? Uh-huh. Well, you're the driver. So they switched. They became, they didn't get to be the attendant. They became the driver. And so <laughs> I remember it was like two years later on, they're coming back for CTC training. And you ask him, how's it going? He says, <laughs> He says, you know how much money I made last year driving him around? <laughs> he says, I can run a fire now if I need to. But why would I? You talked about that those guys had their turnout gear still in the wrappers from when oh, they got spiders in it. We can't put it on. There's spiders in it. Some of it was made out of Nomax still. I mean, it's like, Jesus. And you didn't want them in turnouts. Anymore. No. They, they didn't want to be in turnouts. You didn't want them in turnouts. So for us, the timing was just right because we had been in turnouts kind of all the way up through. Uh, through the process. So it seemed to work out really well. But the the CTC, so when we first started, it was just kind of an experiment. Um, Bruno knew exactly what he wanted, but we were for, we were trying to figure it out. And very quickly, so you probably heard the stories that we were going to do it every quarter. We were going to do a new round of CTC training. Well, we were training the entire valley, all the chief officers in the valley. And then we had the captains in the fits, and we had the captains Oh, we, we, we went every day. We went Monday yeah. and Friday. The first so round, the, it was just a kill. The way it, it worked is ridiculous. when I came to the fire station in the morning, I didn't go to the fire station. I would show up on C-shift, on a, and I would go directly to the CTC, and I taught that whole day, and Nick would hold over and uh, cover the calls. And we would do that for how many, a year and a half? I mean, it was like forever. Oh, it was tremendous. We became our own union reps. At the time. It, it was it, crazy. It was good. It, it was... And, and, you know, and we would come over and help each other train. You know, once we, if we had a call, we'd take the call. But it was, it was pretty crazy. It was crazy times. So we thought we were going to be, and I don't want to say the, the wrong number, but how many hundreds of uh, 
chief officers do we train and and fits every every peer every seven hundred six to seven hundred. I was thinking it was six hundred, but it's, it's a, like a even now it seems like so many. So the other cities were coming in. So there. So right now. Um, they like today they had a BCDC training from Phoenix, which was a, um, you know, so you got somebody who's selected and I don't know if they're a shift commander or a battalion chief and they do training and it was a zoom training and they'll do, they'll do a session each shift. Then they'll do it a month from now. Well, we were doing it every day for everybody, but the real, the, the best training was we had a little bit of a curriculum. We would cover a little bit of the decision-making model or whatever and but the converse and then we'd have a simulation and then the conversation after the simulation is why we had 80% because we were talking about events that actually occurred and you know John Hinton and Nick were entertaining anyway but people they wanted to come to hear after the they would get they would have to sit through the training go through a simulation and then the real fun began right and we had hold it before I leave there and all those district chiefs tried to put shit on our, hey, why you have them all there, add this. Now, you know that happens in your department. Oh, yeah. Oh, can't yeah. well call. I need the first 30 minutes. Every period that would happen. It's like, no, you can't. Yeah. We're not we want to do uniforms. Uh, we get 80% because we don't do that. We don't believe in it. Yeah. Well, we we were very unkept, too. I mean, it, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. We're B-shifters. Yeah. yeah. But it was... Uh, it was wide open. Awesome. Yeah. Great time. I oh, mean, it was, tremendous. I mean, for, for us coming in and seeing what you guys had going, it was like, this is what the American fire service needs right now. And you guys were doing it. Oh, it was tremendous. You know, what's interesting. It happened so fast. I didn't even know one day I'm doing this and the next day we're at the CTC running these. Well, then we figured it out pretty quick. So within about a year, we had it refined. Where? We went from five, well, actually, it was like uh, within six months, because we went from five days a week to three days. So we changed the schedule and said, we're only doing it Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So everybody owes one four-hour training session a week for the shift commanders. Now, originally, we put it together because the plan was we were going to deliver the training to the BCs first, and then the BCs were going to deliver it to the company oh, officers. Uh, yeah. Well, about two weeks trickle, into that. Trickle-down economics. <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. is. We had a meeting with the staff, and they said, okay, here's what happens. A shift came in, and they your four-hour training program, they were done with it in one hour. Then B shift it, show up, and then C shift was here, and they ran out of time halfway through. And so you start, okay, who was here? Okay, that's who the BC was, and then that BC. Okay, okay, this isn't going to work. <laughs> and we knew at the, within two minutes, we, th- I th- I, I, we are so fucked. Because we're going to have to be in it every time. We have to be the adult yeah, in front was... of this thing. And I get, no, and so the first session, we were getting goofy. Yeah. I, I mean, oh. insubordinate with people. So we had to change it, and that's where we did the Monday or the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And you know, the effect was tremendous. It's doing less, but spending better time on it. And then that evolved. 
because we were changing shit out of the Southwest supermarkets. And, right. and it's like, no, 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 we're not changing the Rick thing. That's it's, This is what we're going to do. So being a shift commander allowed us to take over company training. So we said every month we're going to do a set of drills doing this. Where all you old deputies and your young captains put your shit on with your mask and you, yeah. you, you're going to do because that's what, what what was it the the Lincoln fire where we right. almost killed two people right. at a defensive fire so that that was the CTC days we've had them all in and said that's when we took safety over as we said safety can't be in a different division anymore yeah if we're going to run this you got to give us the whole deal <clears throat> so and it just we just kept <laughs> you want the safety division <laughs> take it <laughs> well, man it was it was money it was it, <laughs> the safety officers loved it. They became chief aides. I mean, it was a hug and a kiss. You but couldn't. What, yeah, what a job we had. Every conversation was about operations. Oh, exactly. We, nobody yeah. asked us about paperwork or anything else. I got done by other people. We would just got mm-hmm. to be the, yeah. the everything. And we would have how many? So we would teach. And then every conversation we we would have, we would come in in our days off and talk to each other about the class. I mean, there was a lot of energy. We had a lot of energy. Well, one of the it, so we would get we were the senior advisors. We had the command van. We'd show up and we would you know do that piece yeah. of it. And, you know that was the other deal. So these older deputies were mad because we wouldn't let them in. And we think no, this is a command van. This isn't an RV. So you know it was we, everybody was getting used to the new way we were going to do stuff. No, we would we would actually. Um, it, a deputy would come up to the door and at first there was seven of them just standing around in there. And Bruno didn't even do that. He'd show up and kind of look and say hi and walk out, out and left us alone. But these, you'd have seven deputy chiefs standing around asking you for pars. And so we came up with the, and I don't know exactly how we said, we're going to implement the, every position in here. It's, it's a position and function, just like on the fire round. Five. Yeah. So it's a five. If you ain't one of the five, you better so, outrank. So I remember a, a guy that outranked me and kind of a bully and been around forever. And he's, he opens up the, the door to the CV and I'm the senior advisor. I says, Hey, can I come in? I said, yeah, if you want to be the safety officer over here, you can come in and sit there and put a headset. Well, I don't want to do that. And can't come in. <laughs> and we shut, shut the door on him. And it's like that, that got around. Didn't when we were shutting doors on people, that got around really fast. Well, and there was three or four times a month you'd set the command van on, on yeah. something. And I remember about three or four years into the program is we were having a, sh- a shift commander meeting with our boss, and uh, the command van came up. And we started asking one another, when's the last time you set the thing up? And it had been like two or three months. And we're like, well, and we had had more fires during that period of time. And what we were finding out, it was we were putting them out quicker with fewer resources. It, whole thing. It was it was a hug and a kiss. So that was the proof of the pudding, is the actual application of the thing. So once that began happening, you, people could see then, you know, and... And a lot of stuff, you're up there, you're, you got your rank now, and you're, okay, this, that, and the other thing, and this is the way we're going to do it. And I remember the captain sometimes looking at thinking, okay, we'll see about this. <clears throat> and you would respond on something, and some knucklehead BC would do something that you said we weren't going to do anymore. And so I remember the same captain standing there thinking, all right, we're going to see what happens now. Well, you take a a shift commander who quietly takes a battalion chief by their ear behind a tree. (laughs) 
It's oh, yeah. it applies to all of us. Well, that was it, right? Yeah. yeah. So they could see this is a real deal. It was a uh, yeah. There was an effect to it. So Terry, would you say you're still operationally oriented as a fire chief? <laughs> so today uh, I'm driving. I'm driving to work this morning over in Glendale, and I'm the 101. It's an outer loop freeway. And I'm about two miles from my office about 8 o'clock this morning, and I see a column of smoke start. <laughs> and that thing just goes straight up. And it's a big call. I'm thinking, that has to be a car fire because there was nothing. And then there was thick black smoke about as, I don't know, giant. To me, it looked giant. So I I get off. I pull off. Oh, that's my next exit. So I pull off, and now this thing's really rolling. I'm thinking, well, maybe it's an RV or something. It, it's got to be petroleum. It's like blowing. didn't burn like a brown at any point. It went from clear to black. All The sky was clear, and then black, and then rolling. So I get around the corner, and I pull up, and sure enough, there's a burn victim over here on the right, some uh, large guy who's wearing his underwear, burn all the way down. You can see he ended up having 40% of his body with with uh, third-degree burns. And he's got a little girl with him, and she wasn't burned, but she was in the house. So I pull up in my car, and I look at this, and it's a house with a working – I mean, this sucker is blowing. And I, I went on the scene. <laughs> I, I said, and I, I looked at my radio. Who am I? Oh, I'm car 151. That's who I am. <laughs> car 151 uh, to alarm. Go ahead, car 151. I'm on the scene of a, a, a medium-sized house with obvious work and fire. I'll go ahead and take command. She says, yeah, uh, would you do that on Fire Channel 6? So I was on the wrong deck. I was on the wrong I was on Channel 6. I was... My somehow my radio got probably was I maybe reading reaching for a hamburger or something at lunch. I knocked it over to the wrong deck. So I looked up and an engine company was laying on laying in or actually pulling in. They didn't lay a line from another city and he's giving his on scene report on the right channel and I thought, Thank God. So I don't know if that answers your question. So I, it's all in my head, you know, but it's it's kinda of like uh, I taught I teach a class right now with Chris Stewart, uh uh, at Paradise Valley Community College, and uh, it's he asked me to teach. Been asking me forever. Finally, I said, "God, I'll do it. Just leave me alone." So I, I started teaching uh, <laughs> command strategies for major emergencies. And I said, "Man, I am not very good at teaching." And he said to me, "He goes, you know, T- uh, Terry, it's it is a perishable skill that you got to keep up." And I'm thinking that's a nice way to agree with me that I suck. <laughs> and but uh, so I honestly I think that it is a perishable. Skill. I think we could all, you know, t- teach it eventually, or you know, kind of get. I could get back in, but if you're not out there doing it, and uh, I felt like I could do it as well as anybody, I think if you don't do it for a long time, it you kind of lose a little bit. Would you say so? You hate to say that, but yeah. it's the same way with with really anything. You know, I haven't sat in front of a burning building for twelve years. Yeah. So so they went and they took care of the fire this morning. And I went over and held the little girl. He was like, well, let me do something. I'm in my costume, you know, with the big big gold badge. So I held her and, and waited for that. But, yeah, I, don't, I think I could uh, teach it and talk about it. Um, you probably, you could probably get through a fire with it. I thought I, I thought I was kind of going through the decision-making model there, but I sure was glad when I saw that engine mm-hmm. company and the captain on the scene. Well, if you would have had a good aid or or whatever well, that's, you call them. See, that's you would have been, been money because they tell you what to say. Yeah, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> he would have put me. They would have put me on yeah, the right deck. Yeah, he would have put you on the right deck. So yeah, I think you guys. So what you guys are doing by teaching 
all this. So now you you do it and you teach it, and I think that's a real skill. Uh, I think that's what Hinton was really good at. He he could teach, he could hit the bullet point and entertain you, and so could Nick. And but we did at the time with the CTC. Think about it. We were doing it, we were teaching it. All we did was talk about it. And then we'd start again, and then we just did over and over again. So yeah, it was, it was about five years. That was our whole that was our whole existence, our whole life. And and Bruno saved us. Um, the fire chief saved us from really worrying about anything else. I mean, that was our job. And then and then he made uh, then they made me the super deputy when when uh, Steve Christ was our boss, and he was he had to do a bunch of other stuff. And so he needed help uh, managing the three of us. So he <laughs> called me in and he goes, hey, uh, Terry, fire chief wants you to come in and work staff. And I said, really, what am I going to do? He goes, you're going to manage the shift commanders. I said, I'm getting a promotion. No. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Yeah, I was supposed to manage John Hinton and Nick. Uh, and I'm not getting a promotion. I'm coming in on staff. Well, that's a great deal. When do I start? <laughs> so we tried to find a fourth guy. It's, it we was, did. Yeah, the fourth musketeer. Who was it? Who was it? Cockburner. Oh, is that who it was? Well, it, remember, was it? we thought it was going to be Pete, but it it was uh, yeah. it was there. We we went through. I think Cockburner was the closest to being the fourth there for a while. Pete, a I think he whole, was up next. Yeah, he was up next, and he had paid attention. Uh, to what we were doing, uh, Pete Hobel was uh, probably could have been the the big fourth, but uh, he was busy running the. He went back to a shift. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. they were they were running the staffing for the city. So we had a shift mm-hmm. commander north that was the three of us, and all we did was training. And the shift commander south, and all they did was staffing, and we would all go on calls. But that was their primary. You couldn't do both. So I think he got too busy. And I think, I don't know if Cockburner was south and then came north or whatever, but. I think he came north because before my dad retired, I went to staff. I I became the fourth deputy. Okay. We we had started to uh, revise the procedures. Yeah. So I remember we were starting to incorporate on deck into it and kind of tweaking that. And then he retired, I don't know. Two months into that, and then it, it yeah, yeah, it was uh, so, so. It was a new day. Yeah, then, so I, then Terry became the fire marshal or something crazy like that, right? Well, yeah, no, we all got sent. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they treated us like radiation. Yeah, keep them away from my <laughs> very first day with the new fire chief. Is hey Terry, you're going to be the thanks for everything you're doing. I was in my super deputy office. That's what they used to call me because I managed these. I tried to get them. <laughs> it was it was bad, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be the fire marshal. I said, when? He goes, uh, starting uh, next Tuesday. And I said, wow. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. I said, and I said to him, Hey, I never disrespected the last fire chief. and I'm not going to disrespect you, but don't call me a fire marshal because that's, I don't know anything about fire marshal. I'll go over and manage fire prevention. Sure enough, I go to lunch that day and I come back and there's a plastic fire junior fire marshal helmet on my desk. <laughs> oh. It was that's what you do as yeah. firefighter. I took it as a loving moment. So while we have Terry here, I, I wanted to just talk about a couple other things. Um, <laughs> oh God! No, oh no! <laughs> oh no! Not this! Um, longevity as a fire chief. Yeah. So you, you've been doing it for a while now. What would you say for any fire chiefs, potential fire chiefs out there listening? What is the key to longevity as a fire chief? I'm going to lean forward. <laughs> so, uh, you know, long, so 
first of all, we, we got to tell people the true story. So I was, I was in Oceanside for about two and a half years, maybe almost three. And then I left there and I, as the fire chief, and I was 49 years old. And then I went to, I came back here and I was actually going to retire. And, and uh, Tom Healy, a great fire chief in Daisy Mountain, was dying. Uh, well, he was, he didn't know he was dying. He was getting cancer treatment. He called me up and said, hey, can you be the interim chief while I get my chemo and then I'll come back? And I never wanted to be the fire chief at Daisy Mountain. I just, the fire district thing didn't seem really, I, I wanted more of a city job. So uh, while I was there, I applied for Houston. I went to Houston and got that job, and I was there for five years. And in Houston, when you get a new mayor, thank you, you get a new mayor, you get a new police chief, fire chief, city attorney, water director, and all that. And then um, while I was there, and I think I, I would have stayed there a few more years, but Glendale opened up, and that's where I was born and raised. So I went, came back to Glendale. So longevity as a fire chief, not so much longevity in a position. <laughs> I tell people, yeah, I can't hold a job, can't keep a job. Yeah, but but Houston, they didn't. The first time you thought you were going to leave, they wanted to keep you. Yeah, they, they didn't want you to go. And then you're you're doing well, great I, here. I make I make great friends in in Houston. I still talk to them. I. I I talked to Jackie Dowling on the phone the other day, you know, Captain Iron Bill. So I still connected. Uh, my ops chief at the time, Richard Mann, is the fire chief of College Station. I talked to him all the time. Houston was a, Houston was a great city uh, and great firefighters, honestly. I, I, I would still be there. Uh, thank God I'm not because that mayor and I wouldn't have a lot in common. But so you asked about longevity. So don't do what I did in Oceanside which is uh, tell your city manager to fuck off. That's not a good deal. When he told me to, that I was going to uh, make a two-person engine company, and in California, Southern California, they have three-person companies, and he didn't like the fire department, and he hired me. Uh, but he said, yeah, you're going to make a three-person engine company. I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, yeah, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm the city manager. You're going to do it. I said, I'm the fire chief. I'm not. Yeah, you're going to do it, and you're going to do it right away. I said, no, if you want to be the fire chief, I got a white fucking helmet in my office. Go put it on. And So that started, the, once you still <laughs> fuck out, they get, get they just keep getting louder. So that meeting, and, and I'd already known that I had two and a half years, and I could buy my pension out uh, with my military time. So I, I said, well, hey, you can get rid of me for a cost. And he said, what is it? And I told him. And uh, he said, I'll be right back. He went down to the city attorney's office, come back. And he said, when are you leaving? I said, I didn't ask for enough. But uh, <laughs> so then I had to go. Seriously, that day I walked back across the street to some of the guys that I I just absolutely adore. Uh, Mike Mathai and, and the guys across the street and Joe Ward and those guys. I had to tell them, hey, guys, I just really screwed up. I uh, I I threw down a gauntlet and he picked it up and slapped me with it. But it was it was time to leave Oceanside. So the first thing to longevity is don't tell your bosses to fuck off, even though you <laughs> think it, unless you really are ready to just go on and do something else. But the problem was I left those guys there um, and I felt like I really, even to this day, when I see them, it's like, sorry, I left. And that was how many years ago. And they're like, no, you're okay, chief. No, sorry, I left. So don't ever, you know, be sure which battle you pick because somebody's going to challenge you and you're going to have to really go all the way. I think that was a battle I was willing to, I would do it again today, but I probably could have used a different technique and a little bit more 
I probably could have moved it out further and not done the three person and, and got the data and the reasons why and all that. And that's what I would do today is, you know, I would use some sort of process to convince that person that that's not the way to go before I would tell them, screw you, I'm not doing it. So like using science? Yeah, science yeah. and data and Dana uh, Matikowski. Yeah, right. So, and what three persons do. And so right now I got a city manager who wanted us to go to three person when I first got to Glendale from four. And I, I pulled out all the data and showed them, you know, the NFPA documents and the NIT studies and everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, the breakdown of the work and everything. And he, he had no, he couldn't support that. It's like, so I wasn't going to tell him, screw you, but I wasn't going to, Somehow that was going to get information out that we're lowering the level of service. That would have been a technique to use. So, um, yeah, don't do that. You know, be careful. And it was bad because, once again, they, they got a guy in, and the guy made a two-person engine company, the guy after me. So I wasn't able to prevent that. Once I left, I left. So don't get yourself, as they say in Texas, don't get don't get round up, wound up on a rut because that's what happens. You just grind yourself down. But I, I put myself in a position. So once you say fuck you, it pretty much game on. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't do that again. Um, and then, you know, I go to Houston, and, and Houston, they only had one other outside, you know, the third largest fire department in the country. And I'm the outside guy, and they had an, uh, so they had their last outside guy in, uh, in the 80s, and he lasted 60 days. So when I arrive in Houston, they say, what's your goal, chief? And I'd say, 61 days. <laughs> so I was there over five years, and I would have stayed there, and I made great friends. But in Houston was exactly where I needed to be because it, we were losing firefighters, and I got to work on operations issues. And I worked for a mayor, but she, you know, they wouldn't, a lot of the firefighters wouldn't know it, but she didn't even. She, chief, she goes, if you break it, you fix it. I met her every month for about five minutes. And she go, what do you got? And I, I learned early on, I got nothing. I'm good. I wouldn't ask her for anything. And she would let me run the fire department. I actually liked liked her. Uh, firefighters didn't like her. Um, but she didn't really get in our business too much like she could have, like the, the mayor they have now. Cheapers, creepers. Uh, so there, uh, you know, longevity there is just stay really connected to your people. And like I said, you know, make sure all the fo- chairs are focused uh, on the firefighter, the work you do. I tell, I told one city manager, I said, you know, if you don't appreciate firefighters, uh, it's hard to believe, but do you appreciate the work that they do? Do you appreciate the way the customers are served and the fact that they, how can you appreciate the work without, without appreciating the workers? So that's kind of the way I do it now instead of, oh, you hate firefighters, you rat bastard. That was my B shift <laughs> side. It felt good, but, um, so, and then what I say is every decision I make, and I, I truly mean this in every city I've been, is every decision I make is uh, every dime I spend, every minute I spend should support firefighter safety and customer service. And don't get caught up in all this other crap because you'll get pulled into stuff. You know, they say you're a politician is a fire chief. Well, you're a politician just in life, right? When you're sitting across the table with somebody that disagrees with you about something, that's kind of politics where you're not really telling them what you completely feel, but you're not agreeing with them either. That's kind of the politics of a fire chief. So 
Don't get caught up with a lot of the BS. Yeah, so don't get caught up in that and just make decisions. So the other thing I was lucky early on, so when I went to um, the Ocean side, it was all about tactics because they really didn't have an incident command process there. And I remember the day that I got to take the Suburban and open it up where this guy built this beautiful cabinet to stand behind and actually throw it into the trash because it's like, no. Well, Chief, we're not going to be able to get him uh, it, to stay in the Suburban because he built this cabin. And I said, okay, drive that over to the Academy. Let's pull that out. We pulled it out and threw this walnut-looking thing into the trash and said, you're going to sit there and command. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, and so I guess just focus on operations and focus on supporting your people. And then then I stole Bruno's stuff, and I always uh, – it was be safe, be nice, and be accountable. And that's been my kind of the principles. Be, be safe. So what do you do to be safe? All those things we talk about. Be nice. All the stuff that Bruno brought us. In fact, both of those are stole by him. And then the last was be accountable. And Bruno didn't like the word accountability too much. I told him that once, and he kind of did that deal where – you know how he does that where he kind of, oh. I said, well, you know, the, the, but what they, every time I've, I've arrived as the fire chief, there's always people saying, hey, are you going to hold these guys accountable? And then there's another group that says, thank God, somebody to hold them accountable. So everybody likes that accountability until it's turned on them. So I always like to say, nah. Um, in Houston, it was so big. And I'm, I know I'm all over the place, but I'm trying to give you what I got is that I knew we were going to create change in the Houston Fire Department. So the first thing I did was is we trained everybody on what we call the accountability model, but it really is a change model. And said, here's how we're going to – so the first thing we said we trained is, here's how we're going to change. We're going to set expectations, train to the expectations, monitor performance, and then hold people accountable. But first, we're going to set expectations. So the very first language that I used there was the accountability model, and I got to teach all the – share that with all the chief officers. And it was simple because it's like the reason you need to go through that is because you got to set expectations because what does people say? People say, well, they never told me. And then and then um, train them. What do people say? Well, they never trained me. And then the last, the third piece is monitor performance. Well, I've been doing it this way and nobody's told me anything. And then you hold them accountable. So you kind of eliminate the excuses. And that was the best thing. I didn't even realize how well that was working in Houston. But I would have firefighters come up to me about six months later and say, uh, hey, chief, uh, this guy did this. And I go, yeah. And he goes, but I, I told him his ex, I set expectations with him, chief. So they were using the language back on you. That's pretty, that's pretty cool when that happens. Um, so I think, you know, just don't take anything too personal. Don't do what Nick advised us not to do is stay away from office furniture. The, the police chief in Houston, a really nice man when I was there, this large, tough grew up in the streets of houston cop african-american guy and he was just shredded at about six foot six and 225 pounds and nicest guy in the planet and uh he got an office chair um he got this really nice office chair about a month later we wanted to buy chairs 
for the dispatch center. And you know how much a dispatch center chair is. They're like thousands and thousands of dollars. So a reporter came in and did a research project on all the chairs in the that the city had purchased, believe it or not. And they found out that the, uh, the police chief had spent a grand or whatever it was on his office chair. So he got interviewed on that. And that could have ended up really bad for him, Nick. But uh, I remember the interview. <laughs> He's just such a great guy. But they, the, the reporter says, asking a question, so I heard you bought this you know, $1,000 chair. Yeah, I did. Well, why did you buy that? Because I like comfortable chairs. <laughs> and I sit in my chair a lot. He goes, well, we'd like to see your chair. Can we see your chair? No, you can't see my chair. It's my chair. <laughs> and the interview <laughs> stopped. He got away with that. But um, that's a one-in-a-lifetime deal because that could have went really bad for him. Uh, but anything like that, just silly stuff that you purchase things on. Just You know, I was telling our guys the other day, we're going through a budget process. And um, we don't ask for better chairs, better bed mattresses, bigger TVs, union buys those anyway, or bigger um, kitchen chairs or couches. We ask for tick cameras, hoses, nozzles, turnouts. That's what we ask for in the fire service and city managers and budget directors keep beating us up while you guys keep asking for shit because we want to do our job. Why do you need uh, two paramedics on a on a uh, engine. That's what I'm going through right now. Why do you need two paramedics? Because uh, I want the customers to survive. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if you just focus on that, and I tell every city manager, um, I would focus on fire, fire safety and customer service. That's my decision. So if you bump up against that, like four-person staffing or two paramedics, then you and I are going to bump up against each other. But I'll do it in a more respectful way. Right. It's pretty simple, though, isn't it? I mean, what what, what you're describing, yeah. and and it's amazing how complicated people can make the job. It's it's not being a fire chief's pretty easy because you're everybody else is doing the work. Yeah, they really are. Get along with labor because they, you know they're they're in the same business. If they support your, you know, you're both there to support the firefighters. Why would you argue with people who are supporting your 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 workforce? It's, I care as much about the, uh, the workforce as a labor president. So you got to communicate yeah. and, and let, let people know that. And, um, you know, not necessarily visible all the time, but they know you're there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that old saying, they, 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 when I got to Houston, first of all, I had a wonderful saying when I got to Houston, this was, I'm not from Houston or not from Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. They liked that. Mm-hmm. But the other one was, is you, uh, people don't, they don't care what you know till you, they know you care. It sounds goofy, but it really does. I had the, and I'm going to brag right here. It's the only time that I'm going to really brag about something. So when Captain Bill Dowling died, the Southwest uh, Freeway fire that killed our four firefighters immediately and, and lot, cost some other guys their career. And then Captain Bill Dowling, the toughest guy on the planet, lost his legs. They pulled him out of the fire and he lived for a few years and his wife Jackie took wonderful care of him. When he finally died, I shouldn't say finally, when he died, that uh, I got a call from Richard Mann, who was the ops chief there, and he goes, hey, uh, what are you doing on this date? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, the crew of his company wants you to come back and speak on behalf of the firefighters. I said, what? He goes, 
they, you know, at the funeral for Bill Dowling, they want you to come back and talk on behalf of the firefighters. It's like, are you shit me? There's never, there's never a bigger compliment in my entire life. So I think that they knew I, that I cared about all of them because we went through that entire event together. But can you imagine all the Houston firefighters, the outside chief who is a rat bastard to many, they asked me to come back and, and talk on behalf. And it was probably the one time in my life where I was more nervous speaking in public and as I'm writing what I was going to say and man I was saying prayers let me get this right and my wife was helping me and uh but that to me was like that was the biggest moment in my life so show people you care even if you got to make Bruno used to say don't yell down yell up I yelled up and and added an fu to it and what cost me my job but yell up don't yell down right you ever yell at a kid, one of your kids, and then go, man, I feel like shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the way you should yeah. feel. As a fire chief, you yep. should probably, or as a as a, anybody within the fire service, you should probably feel like that. If you don't feel like that after getting on a firefighter's ass, you probably, like Nick said, he took the guy behind the tree, and you, he was very specific on that incident where I, I, I saw him do something knucklehead that I told him not to do. Nick, who's as big in life as Nick is, took him behind the tree and said, hey, knock it off, right? So I think that's a big deal. That's awesome. a long answer to that question. That's a great answer. I hope you don't ask, ask me anymore. <laughs> you know, I hate to talk about myself like that, but that was that was a, a big moment for me. My wife went back with me. and Well, I'm glad you talked about yourself because, I mean, for me, since I first saw you speak in like 2005 and followed your career – and now we write an article together and you're mm-hmm. always the the wiser of the two. I don't believe that. Yeah, I I've just really admired you and you know you 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 come out with love and and uh, and you you you, lo- you love your people, you love the business yeah. and uh I you know I I enjoy writing that. I'm so, I'm going to break in cuz you're getting there. But I I enjoy writing that article with you. You you have a very interesting perspective and we're always uh, on the same page coming at it from different sides of the the same topic, but we get right there and we end up in the same place. And I think that's pretty awesome. That's why I knew I'm on track. I know I'm on track when I end up kind of close to where you are. Cause I think you're pretty, uh, you're pretty sharp and I appreciate that. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate you talking to us today. Are you kidding? Thanks for inviting me over. Nick said I was going to have cocktails, but I'm sitting here with no <laughs> drinks. He said there'd be dancing girls. I don't hear no music. Let's go pick out office furniture. <laughs> <laughs>
And that's a wrap of this edition of B-Shifter. We want to thank Terry Garrison and, of course, Nick Bernasini for joining us on this episode. If you'd like to reach out to either of them, their contact information is in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for us here at the B-Shifter podcast, please let us know, too. You can reach me, John Vance at bshifter.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please be safe. Thank you.